Chapter Eleven, Part One of The Voyage of the Beagle. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. The Voyage of the Beagle by Charles Darwin. Chapter Eleven, Part One. Strait of Magellan, climate of the southern coasts. Strait of Magellan, Port Famine, ascent of Mount Tan, forests, edible fungus zoology great seaweed leave tierra del fuego climate fruit trees and productions of the southern coasts height of snow line on the cordillera descent of glaciers to the sea icebergs formed transportal of boulders climate and productions of the antarctic islands preservation of frozen carcasses recapitulation in the end of may eighteen thirty four we entered for a second time the eastern mouth of the Strait of Magellan. The country on both sides of this part of the strait consists of nearly level plains like those of Patagonia. Cape Negro, a little within the second narrows, may be considered as the point where the land begins to assume the marked features of Tierra del Fuego. On the east coast, south of the strait, broken park-like scenery in a like manner connects these two countries, which are opposed to each other in almost every feature. It is truly surprising to find in a space of twenty miles such a change in the landscape. If we take a rather greater distance, as between Port Famine and Gregory Bay, that is about sixty miles, the difference is still more wonderful. At the former place we have rounded mountains concealed by impervious forests, which are drenched with the rain, brought by an endless succession of gales, while at Cape Gregory there is a clear and bright blue sky over the dry and sterile plains. The atmospheric currents, although rapid, turbulent, and unconfined by any apparent limits, yet seem to follow, like a river in its bed, a regularly determined course. Footnote. The southwesterly breezes are generally very dry, January 29th being at anchor under Cape Gregory, a very hard gale from west by south, clear sky with few cumuli, temperature 57 degrees, dew point 36 degrees. Difference 21 degrees. On January 15th at Port St. Julian, in the morning light winds with much rain, followed by a very heavy squall with rain, settled into a heavy gale with large cumuli, cleared up, blowing very strong from south-southwest. Temperature 60 degrees, dew point 42 degrees, difference 18 degrees. End footnote. During our previous visit, in January, we had an interview at Cape Gregory with the famous so-called gigantic Patagonians, who gave us a cordial reception. Their height appears greater than it really is, from their large guanaco mantles, their long flowing hair, and general figure. On an average, their height is about six feet, with some men taller and only a few shorter, and the women are also tall. Altogether, they are certainly the tallest race which we anywhere saw. In features they strikingly resemble the more northern Indians whom I saw with Rosas, but they have a wilder and more formidable appearance. Their faces were much painted with red and black, and one man was ringed and dotted with white like a Fuegian. Captain Fitzroy offered to take any three of them on board, and all seemed determined to be of the three. It was long before we could clear the boat. At last we got on board with our three giants, who dined with the captain, and behaved quite like gentlemen, helping themselves with knives, forks, and spoons. Nothing was so much relished as sugar. 
This tribe has had so much communication with sealers and whalers that most of the men can speak a little English and Spanish, and they are half civilized and proportionally demoralized. The next morning a large party went on shore to barter for skins and ostrich feathers. Firearms being refused, tobacco was in greatest request, far more so than axes or tools. The whole population of the Toldos, men, women, and children, were arranged on a bank. It was an amusing scene, and it was impossible not to like the so-called giants. They were so thoroughly good-humoured and unsuspecting, they asked us to come again. They seemed to like to have Europeans to live with them, and old Maria, an important woman in the tribe, once begged Mr. Lowe to leave any one of his sailors with them. They spent the greater part of the year here, but in summer they hunt along the foot of the Cordillera. Sometimes they travel as far as the Rio Negro, 750 miles to the north. They are well stocked with horses, each man having, according to Mr. Lowe, six or seven, and all the women, and even children, their one own horse. In the time of Sarmiento, 1580, these Indians had bows and arrows, now long since disused. They then also possessed some horses. This is a very curious fact, showing the extraordinarily rapid multiplication of horses in South America. The horse was first landed at Buenos Aires in 1537, and the colony being then for a time deserted, the horse ran wild. In 1580, only 43 years afterwards, we hear of them at the Strait of Magellan. Mr. Lowe informs me that a neighbouring tribe of foot Indians is now changing into horse Indians, the tribe at Gregory Bay giving them their worn-out horses and sending in winter a few of their best-skilled men to hunt for them. June 1st. We anchored in the fine bay of Port Famine. It was now the beginning of winter, and I never saw a more cheerless prospect. The dusky woods, piebald with snow, could be only seen indistinctly through a drizzling, hazy atmosphere. We were, however, lucky in getting two fine days. On one of these, Mount Sarmiento, a distant mountain 6,800 feet high, presented a very noble spectacle. I was frequently surprised in the scenery of Tierra del Fuego, at the little apparent elevation of mountains really lofty. I suspect it is owing to a cause which would not at first be imagined, namely, that the whole mass, from the summit to the water's edge, is generally in full view. I remember having seen a mountain, first from the Beagle Channel, where the whole sweep from the summit to the base was full in view, and then from Ponsonby Sound across several successive ridges, and it was curious to observe in the latter case, as each fresh ridge afforded fresh means of judging of the distance, how the mountain rose in height. Before reaching Port Famine, two men were seen running along the shore and hailing the ship. A boat was sent for them. They turned out to be two sailors who had run away from a sealing vessel and had joined the Patagonians. These Indians had treated them with their usual disinterested hospitality. They had parted company through accident and were then proceeding to Port Famine in hopes of finding some ship. I dare say they were worthless vagabonds, but I never saw more miserable-looking ones. They had been living for some days on mussel shells and berries, and their tattered clothes had been burned by sleeping so near their fires. They had been exposed night and day without any shelter to the late incessant gales with rain, sleet, and snow, and yet they were in good health. During our stay at Port Famine, the Fuegians twice came and plagued us. As there were many instruments, clothes, and men on shore, it was thought necessary to frighten them away. The first time a few great guns were fired when they were far distant. 
It was most ludicrous to watch through a glass the Indians, as often as the shot struck the water, take up stones and, as a bold defiance, throw them towards the ship, though about a mile and a half distant. A boat was sent with orders to fire a few musket-shots wide of them. The Fuegians hid themselves behind the trees, and for every discharge of the muskets they fired their arrows. All, however, fell short of the boat, and the officer, as he pointed at them, laughed. This made the Fuegians frantic with passion, and they shook their mantles in vain rage. At last, seeing the balls cut and strike the trees, they ran away, and we were left in peace and quietness. During the former voyage, the Fuegians were here very troublesome, and to frighten them a rocket was fired at night over their wigwams. It answered effectually, and one of the officers told me that the clamour first raised and the barking of the dogs was quite ludicrous in contrast with the profound silence which in a minute or two afterwards prevailed. The next morning not a single Fuegian was in the neighbourhood. When the Beagle was here in the month of February, I started one morning at four o'clock to ascend Mount Tarn, which is 2,600 feet high, and is the most elevated point in this immediate district. We went in a boat to the foot of the mountain, but unluckily not to the best part, and then began our ascent. The forest commences at a line of high-water mark, and during the first two hours I gave over all hopes of reaching the summit. So thick was the wood that it was necessary to have constant recourse to the compass, for every landmark, though in a mountainous country, was completely shut out. In the deep ravines the death-like scene of desolation exceeded all description. Outside it was blowing a gale, but in these hollows not even a breath of wind stirred the leaves of the tallest trees. So gloomy, cold, and wet was every part that not even the fungi, mosses, or ferns could flourish. In the valleys it was scarcely possible to crawl along. They were so completely barricaded by great mouldering trunks, which had fallen down in every direction. When passing over these natural bridges, one's course was often arrested by sinking knee-deep into the rotten wood. At other times, when attempting to lean against a firm tree, one was startled by finding a mass of decayed matter ready to fall at the slightest touch. We at last found ourselves among the stunted trees, and then soon reached the bare ridge, which conducted us to the summit. Here was a view characteristic of Tierra del Fuego, irregular chains of hills, mottled with patches of snow, deep yellowish-green valleys, and arms of the sea intersecting the land in many directions. The strong wind was piercingly cold, and the atmosphere rather hazy, so that we did not stay long on the top of the mountain. Our descent was not quite so laborious as our ascent, for the weight of the body forced a passage, and all the slips and falls were in the right direction. I have already mentioned the sombre and dull character of the evergreen forests, in which two or three species of trees grow, to the exclusion of all others. Footnote. Captain Fitzroy informs me that in April, our October, the leaves of those trees which grow near the base of the mountains change colour, but not those on the more elevated parts. I remember having read some observations showing that in England the leaves fall earlier in a warm and fine autumn than in a late and cold one, the change in the colour being here retarded in the more elevated and therefore colder situations must be owing to the same general law of vegetation. The trees of Terra del Fuego during no part of the year entirely shed their leaves. End footnote. Above the forest land there are many dwarf alpine plants which all spring from the mass of peat and help to compose it. 
these plants are very remarkable from their close alliance with the species growing on the mountains of Europe, though so many thousand miles distant. The central part of Tierra del Fuego, where the clay-slate formation occurs, is most favorable to the growth of trees. On the outer coast, the poor granitic soil and a situation more exposed to the violent winds do not allow of their attaining any great size. Near Port Famine, I have seen more large trees than anywhere else. I measured a winter's bark which was four feet six inches in girth, and several of the beach were as much as thirteen feet. Captain King also mentions a beach which was seven feet in diameter, seventeen feet above the roots. There is one vegetable production deserving notice from its importance as an article of food to the Fuegians. It is a globular, bright yellow fungus which grows in vast numbers on the beech trees. When young, it is elastic and turgid, with a smooth surface, but when mature it shrinks, becomes tougher, and has its entire surface deeply pitted or honeycombed, as represented in the accompanying woodcut. This fungus belongs to a new and curious genus. I found a second species on another species of beech in Chile, and Dr. Hooker informs me that just lately a third species has been discovered on a third species of beech in Van Diernen's land. Footnote. Described from my specimens and notes by the Rev. J. M. Berkeley in the Linnaean Transactions, volume 19, page 37, under the name of Citeria darwinii, the Chilean species is Citeria berteroii. This genus is allied to Bulgaria. End footnote. How singular is this relationship between parasitical fungi and the trees on which they grow in distant parts of the world! In Cerro del Fuego, the fungus in its tough and mature state is collected in large quantities by the women and children, and is eaten uncooked. It has a mucilaginous, slightly sweet taste, with a faint smell like that of a mushroom. With the exception of a few berries, chiefly of a dwarf arbutus, the natives eat no vegetable food besides this fungus. In New Zealand, before the introduction of the potato, the roots of the fern were largely consumed. At the present time, I believe, Cerro del Fuego is the only country in the world where a cryptogamic plant affords a staple article of food. The zoology of Cerro del Fuego, as might have been expected from the nature of its climate and vegetation, is very poor. Of mammalia, besides whales and seals, there is one bat, a kind of mouse, Reithrodon chinchiloides, two true mice, a ctenomys allied to or identical with the tucutuco, two foxes, Canis magellanicus and Canis azari, a sea otter, the guanaco, and a deer. Most of these animals inhabit only the drier eastern parts of the country, and the deer has never been seen south of the Strait of Magellan. Observing the general correspondence of the cliffs of soft sandstone, mud, and shingle on the opposite sides of the strait, and on some intervening islands, one is strongly tempted to believe that the land was once joined, and thus allowed animals so delicate and helpless as the Tukutuko and Rethrodon to pass over. The correspondence of the cliffs is far from proving any junction, because such cliffs generally are formed by the intersection of sloping deposits, which, before the elevation of the land, had been accumulated near the then existing shores. It is, however, a remarkable coincidence that in the two large islands cut off by the Beagle Channel from the rest of Cerradol Fuego, one has cliffs composed of matter that may be called stratified alluvium, which front similar ones on the opposite side of the channel, while the other is exclusively bordered by old crystalline rocks. 
in the former called neverin island both foxes and guanacos occur but in the latter host island although similar in every respect and only separated by a channel a little more than half a mile wide i have the word of jemmy button for saying that neither of these animals are found the gloomy woods are inhabited by few birds occasionally the plaintive note of a white tufted tyrant flycatcher myobius albicheps may be heard concealed near the summit of the most lofty trees and more rarely the loud strange cry of a black woodpecker with a fine scarlet crest on its head a little dusky-coloured wren scitalopus magellanicus hops in a skulking manner among the entangled mass of the fallen and decaying trunks but the creeper oxyurus tupinieri is the commonest bird in the country throughout the beech forests high up and low down in the most gloomy wet and impenetrable ravines it may be met with this little bird no doubt appears more numerous than it really is from its habit of following with seeming curiosity any person who enters these silent woods continually uttering a harsh twitter it flutters from tree to tree within a few feet of the intruder's face it is far from wishing for the modest concealment of the true creeper certia familiaris nor does it like that bird run up the trunks of trees but industriously after the manner of a willow wren hops about and searches for insects on every twig and branch in the more open parts three or four species of finches a thrush a starling or ictrus two opetiorhynchi and several hawks and owls occur the absence of any species whatever in the whole class of reptiles is a marked feature in the zoology of this country as well as in that of the falkland islands i do not ground this statement merely on my own observation but i heard it from the spanish inhabitants of the latter place and from jemmy button with regard to Cerro del fuego on the banks of the santa cruz in fifty degrees south i saw a frog and it is not improbable that these animals as well as lizards may be found as far south as the strait of magellan where the country retains the character of patagonia but within the damp and cold limit of Cerro del fuego not one occurs that the climate would not have suited some of the orders such as lizards might have been foreseen but with respect to frogs this was not so obvious beetles occur in very small numbers it was long before i could believe that a country as large as scotland covered with vegetable productions and with a variety of stations could be so unproductive the few which i found were alpine species hyrpalidae and heteromidae living under stones the vegetable feeding chrysomelidae so eminently characteristic of the tropics are here almost entirely absent i saw very few flies butterflies or bees and no crickets or orthoptera footnote i believe i must accept one alpine haltica and a single specimen of a melasoma mr waterhouse informs me that of the harpalidae there are eight or nine species the forms of the greater number being very peculiar of heteromera four or five species of rhynchophora six or seven and of the following families one species in each staphylinidae elateridae cibrionidae melolonthidae the species in the other orders are even fewer in all the orders the scarcity of the individuals is even more remarkable than that of the species most of the coleoptera have been carefully described by mr waterhouse in the annals of natural history and footnote in the pools of water i found but a few aquatic beetles and not any fresh-water shells 
Saxinae at first appears an exception, but here it must be called a terrestrial shell, for it lives on the damp herbage far from the water. Land shells could be procured only in the same alpine situations with the beetles. I have already contrasted the climate as well as the general appearance of Chared of Fuego with that of Patagonia, and the difference is strongly exemplified in the entomology. I do not believe they have one species in common. Certainly, the general character of the insects is widely different. If we turn from the land to the sea, we shall find the latter as abundantly stocked with living creatures, as the former is poorly so. In all parts of the world, a rocky and partially protected shore perhaps supports, in a given space, a greater number of individual animals than any other station. There is one marine production which, from its importance, is worthy of a particular history. It is the kelp, or Macrocystis periphera. This plant grows on every rock from low water mark to a great depth, both on the outer coast and within the channels. Footnote. Its geographical range is remarkably wide. It is found from the extreme southern islets near Cape Horn, as far north on the eastern coast, according to information given me by Mr. Stokes, as lateral 43 degrees. But on the western coast, as Dr. Hooker tells me, it extends to the Rio San Francisco and California, and perhaps even to Kamchatka. We thus have an immense range in latitude, and as Cook, who must have been well acquainted with the species, found it at Kerguelen land no less than 140 degrees in longitude. I believe, during the voyages of the Adventure and Beagle, not one rock near the surface was discovered which was not buoyed by this floating weed. The good surface it thus affords to vessels navigating near this stormy land is evident, and it certainly has saved many a one from being wrecked. I know few things more surprising than to see this plant growing and flourishing amidst those great breakers of the western ocean, which no mass of rock, let it be ever so hard, can long resist. The stem is round, slimy and smooth, and seldom has a diameter of so much as an inch. A few taken together are sufficiently strong to support the weight of the large loose stones to which in the inland channels they grow attached, and yet some of these stones were so heavy that when drawn to the surface they could scarcely be lifted into a boat by one person. Captain Cook, in his second voyage, says that this plant at Kerguelen land rises from a greater depth than twenty-four fathoms, Quote, and as it does not grow in a perpendicular direction, but makes a very acute angle with the bottom, and much of it afterwards spreads many fathoms on the surface of the sea, I am well warranted to say that some of it grows to the length of sixty fathoms and upwards. I do not suppose the stem of any other plant attains so great a length as three hundred and sixty feet, as stated by Captain Cook. Captain Fitzroy, moreover, found it growing up from the greater depth of forty-five fathoms. Footnote. Voyages of the Adventure and Beagle, Volume 1, page 363. It appears that seaweed grows extremely quick. Mr. Stevenson found, Wilson's Voyage Round Scotland, Volume 2, page 228, that a rock uncovered only at spring tides, which had been chiselled smooth in November, on the following May, that is, within six months afterwards, was thickly covered with Fugus digitatus two feet, and Fugus escolentus six feet in length. End footnote. The beds of this seaweed, even when of not great breadth, make excellent natural floating breakwaters. It is quite curious to see, in an exposed harbour, how soon the waves from the open sea, as they travel through the straggling stems, sink in height, and pass into smooth water. 
the number of living creatures of all orders whose existence intimately depends on the kelp is wonderful a great volume might be written describing the inhabitants of one of these beds of seaweed almost all the leaves excepting those that float on the surface are so thickly encrusted with corallines as to be of a white colour we find exquisitely delicate structures some inhabited by simple hydra-like polypi others by more organised kinds and beautiful compound ascidiae on the leaves also various patelliform shells trochae uncovered mollusks and some bivalves are attached innumerable crustacea frequent every part of the plant on shaking the great entangled roots a pile of small fish shells cuttlefish crabs of all orders sea eggs starfish beautiful holothuriae planariae and crawling naratus animals of a multitude of forms all fall out together often as i recur to a branch of the kelp i never fail to discover animals of new and curious structures in chile where the kelp does not thrive very well the numerous shells corallines and crustacea are absent but they yet remain a few of the flustraceae and some compound ascidiae the latter however are of different species from those in Terra del Fuego. We see here the fucus possessing a wider range than the animals which use it as an abode. I can only compare these great aquatic forests of the southern hemisphere with the terrestrial ones in the intertropical regions. Yet if in any country a forest was destroyed, I do not believe nearly so many species of animals would perish as would here from the destruction of the kelp. Amidst the leaves of this plant numerous species of fish live, which nowhere else could find food or shelter. With their destruction, the many cormorants and other fishing birds, the otters, seals, and porpoises, would soon perish also. And lastly, the Fuegian savage, the miserable lord of this miserable land, would redouble his cannibal feast, decrease in numbers, and perhaps cease to exist. June 8th. We weighed anchor early in the morning and left Port Famine. Captain Fitzroy determined to leave the Strait of Magellan by the Magdalen Channel, which had not long been discovered. Our course lay due south, down that gloomy passage which I have before alluded to as appearing to lead to another and worse world. The wind was fair, but the atmosphere was very thick, so that we missed much curious scenery. The dark, ragged clouds were rapidly driven over the mountains, from their summits nearly down to their bases. The glimpses which we caught through the dusky mass were highly interesting. Jagged points, cones of snow, blue glaciers, strong outlines marked on the lurid sky were seen at different distances and heights. In the midst of such scenery we anchored at Cape Turn, close to Mount Sarmiento, which was then hidden in the clouds. At the base of the lofty and almost perpendicular sides of our little cove there was one deserted wigwam and it alone reminded us that man sometimes wandered into these desolate regions. But it would be difficult to imagine a scene where he seemed to have fewer claims or less authority. The inanimate works of nature, rock, ice, snow, wind and water, all warring with each other, yet combined against man, here reigned in absolute sovereignty. June 9th in the morning we were delighted by seeing the veil of mist gradually rise from sarmiento and display it to our view this mountain which is one of the highest in terra del fuego has an altitude of six thousand eight hundred feet its base for about an eighth of its total height is clothed by dusky woods and above this a field of snow extends to the summit 
these vast piles of snow which never melt and seem destined to last as long as the world holds together present a noble and even sublime spectacle the outline of the mountain was admirably clear and defined owing to the abundance of light reflected from the white and glittering surface no shadows were cast on any part and those lines which intersected the sky could alone be distinguished hence the mass stood out in the boldest relief several glaciers descended in a winding course from the upper great expanse of snow to the sea coast they may be likened to great frozen niagaras and perhaps these cataracts of blue ice are full as beautiful as the moving ones of water by night we reached the western part of the channel but the water was so deep that no anchorage could be found we were in consequence obliged to stand off and on in this narrow arm of the sea during a pitch-dark night of fourteen hours long june tenth in the morning we made the best of our way into the open pacific the western coast generally consists of low rounded quite barren hills of granite and greenstone sir j narborough called one part south desolation because it is quote, so desolate a land to behold end quote. and well indeed might he say so outside the main islands there are numberless scattered rocks on which the long swell of the open ocean incessantly rages we passed out between the east and west furies and a little farther northward there are so many breakers that the sea is called the milky way one side of such a coast is enough to make a landsman dream for a week about shipwrecks peril and death and with this sight we bade farewell for ever to tierra del fuego End of chapter 11, part 1